0: Well, would you, if you have a Bible, hopefully you do, if you don't, please get one, there should be some in the pews, and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, this morning. And as we go there, I want to ask a question, do we want people to believe in Jesus? I, I would say yes. Would you say Yes. We want to, them to see him as more precious, more valuable, more worthy than anything this life has to offer, because all this stuff in this life is temporary. There was an American a long time ago named Adoniram Judson. You may be familiar with that name, and he was one of the first missionaries to be sent from the from. Actually, yes, it was a country at that point. <laughs> And he had that desire for people to see Jesus as more precious, valuable, and more worthy than anything this life has to offer. And then he eventually came to Burma, which is now called Myanmar, in Southeast Asia. And he worked faithfully there to bring the gospel to these Hindus. But it wasn't until six years had gone by that he saw the first person converted to Jesus under his ministry. So my question is, and maybe his question was, what was going on in those six years when there seemed to be no fruit? Was Jesus the Savior of the world, but not Burma, not Myanmar? Was God off somewhere else? Was he wringing his hands that no one was believing? Or was he still in control? Was he still sovereign? And if God is still sovereign today, when we see the effects and unbelief around us, do we believe him? And when we even see that in our own county, where likely more people than not do not believe in Jesus, even here. And the people who believed Jesus in the first century were actually asking a very similar question. But they were asking, if Jesus was the Savior of the world, including Israel, why weren't more Jews? The people who were from the chosen nation that had been given the scriptures, why weren't they, why weren't more of them believing in Jesus? Had God failed there too? Well, this passage we're going to study today provides some perspective. And Lord willing, will reassure us and give us a renewed hope, even in the midst of unbelief. So, we are in John chapter 12, so would you stand as we read in verse the second half of verse 36 through verse 43. This is the word of God. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You may have a seat. What's going on here in this passage? Jesus has just given this great great teaching about being the light of the world and that when he is lifted up, all men will be drawn to him. And in this passage, it seems like unbelief is winning. And in our day, sometimes it seems like unbelief is winning. But is that really the case? No, there is divine design here. And this passage shows us that God is sovereign over unbelief. Now this text does not use the word sovereign. If anybody saw that, it read that in there, I don't think you have a right translation. But the idea is there, and we're going to be exploring it. So what does that word mean as we get going? I mean, because we use that in church all the time, but I, I can't even tell you the last time I heard that out, out there. Well, at one level it means... God is in control. And then you might ask, well, Aaron, if it means he's in control, why not just say he's in control and skip the fancy word? Well, I use the word sovereign, and Christians across the century have used the word sovereign because God's control is not the same as someone who has the controls of a backhoe or excavator and is digging a foundation for a building. It's not the same. God's control is like the person controlling the backhoe, who also controls the very molecules in the dirt and the machinery that he's using to lift that dirt, who determines whether the sun is shining that day he's doing the digging, who sustains the gravity that is keeping the backhoe on the ground, and who determines and sustains whether that man's heart keeps beating normally or at all while he's doing this, and who is able to guide that man's thoughts and his muscles and who allows insects or snowflakes, and how many to fly by the cab of that machinery. And then, imagine if you can, and if we can, that kind of control being exercised for every moment of every day, from eternity past to day one of creation, now and forever, not just for the guy in the backhoe, but for everyone, and not just physically, but spiritually. Can you, can you wrap your mind around that? That is a picture of God's sovereignty. And it is this God, sovereign God whose word says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God makes dead things alive by speaking. And he always, always accomplishes his plan A. He never ever resorts to plan B. So, that said, if God is sovereign over unbelief, in what postures of unbelief should we believe God? First, we should believe God when others don't believe he says he departed and hid himself from them in verse 37 though he had done so many signs before them they still did not believe in him the question of this passage is why did they not believe well first they don't believe because evidence is not enough Look at verse 36 and 37. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done all these things, things they could see, irrefutable proofs as it were, they still did not believe him. And even the physical presence of Jesus is not enough for the people to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. even with his astounding signs, which included raising people from the dead, the evidence is not enough. Why? Because they already had an idea in their minds of who the Christ really was, and he wasn't it for them. The evidence didn't fit their picture. And we see that all over the place in our world today. There are people who are paid full-time to study the Bible. They teach university classes on it. They're even found, sadly, in pulpits, who read the Bible and have concluded that it is simply religious literature, no more or less valuable than other contributions to human literature. But what's the problem? That's not true. But they don't believe because, why? They're not born again. They don't heed Jesus' plea to walk in the light. Jesus is hidden from them. Because believing in Jesus requires more than evidence. As helpful as evidence is. They don't believe because evidence is not enough. And secondly, they don't believe because God's word said they wouldn't. This passage says they still did not believe in him, and then it goes on to explain a reason why they didn't believe. Verse 38, So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And this question is almost asked rhetorically by the prophet Isaiah. It comes from Isaiah 53. That means that the teaching of Jesus and the prophets, what he heard from us, and the incredible signs pointing to salvation, what he describes as the arm of the Lord being revealed, they were rejected by the people, just as God said it would be. Now, (laughs) this does not absolve the people from the responsibility of believing or rejecting We are held responsible if we reject the Word of God. It simply means that what they were doing, not believing Jesus, was part of God's plan before Jesus came. What they were doing was not outside God's control. And that's a good indicator for us to believe Him. Because if His Word has proven true, and it has at every single turn. If his word is proven true, that is really good grounds for believing him. If he said that people were going to reject his Messiah, and nobody did, could we trust his word? And again, as I said, this comes from Isaiah. This, passage, this quote comes from Isaiah fifty-three. One of the clearest prophecies that Jesus would come, be rejected, and die to save people from their sins. And this should call us to believe God when others don't believe. God is sovereign over unbelief. So when else should we believe God? Second, we should believe God when others can't believe. Let's read this, verse 39. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Okay. This passage is really clear. Like uncomfortably clear. Perhaps hard to hear, and it enters into an area of God's sovereignty where we need to be humble, thoughtful, and careful. And we also need to admit that when it comes to God's sovereignty, there is a significant amount of mystery. We're going through this word, and there are some things that are revealed to us, and there are some things that are not because we're dealing with God. Now, that doesn't mean we should run away from this passage. That doesn't mean we should leave it as, un, as ambiguous as possible. But we need to recognize that, that mystery and approach this on good terms. So I think we need to start with some good ground rules, some biblical reminders as we get into this part of the passage. And I was reminded of these by guys who have studied the Scripture way more and are way more thoughtful about it than I am. Guys, guys like D. A. Carson and James Montgomery Boyce. And they brought to mind first that we must remember Scripture's teaching that God is holy, good. He's good. He never does evil. He is never unjust. He is never arbitrary in what He does. He determines when to show grace and when to withhold it, and that's always for His glory and our good. And being good, being God, He is not obligated to anyone, and He's not obligated by anyone. That's the first thing. Second thing, we must remember what Scripture teaches about humanity us. Scripture says we are made in the image of God, but that because of sin we are not morally neutral, nor are we morally pure beings. We are sinners both by nature and by choice apart from God's gracious initiative. So if we can summarize those two teachings of Scripture, and they are there. One, God is good and sovereign. And two, we are neither on our own. So, now we get to the passage. Verse 39 give some support to this, because it starts with the word, therefore. And as many have said, and it's a great Bible study tool, we need to ask what the therefore is there for. How are these people not able to believe? This is clear. They could not believe. How come they can't believe? Well, they can't believe because they didn't believe. The therefore refers to the people who didn't believe Jesus. They rejected Jesus, his teaching and his signs, and it's because they didn't believe that this verse says, therefore they could not. It wasn't like these people were helpless victims. They were the Jewish people who had been given the word of God telling them how to recognize their Messiah and how to prepare for Him for centuries. Linda talked about the kids being taught when they were little. They were supposed to be taught these things from day one. They were supposed to recognize Him and be ready for Him, and they didn't do that. And here's something that should sober all of us up disobedience leads to further disobedience, naturally. Repentance is possible after disobedience and denial. We just have, look, look at our apostles, look at the Apostle Peter. It is possible to turn from that. However, we must take very seriously that what happened to those who rejected the clearest proofs of Messiahship that their willful rejection hurtled them along the road to hardened unrepentance. Those who think that they can live like the devil and then confess Christ on their deathbed are almost certainly never to do it. For it is the rejection of Jesus that hardens a person against Jesus. You want to make it harder to get out of sin? Keep doing that sin. Secondly, they can't believe because God is holy. Because the passage says they could not believe for, verse 39, for, there's one of those explanatory words. Again, Isaiah said, verse 40, He, that's God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I, that's God talking now in the first person, would heal them. Why would God do this? Why does it seem like God didn't want them to see or understand? Why didn't he want to heal them? Doesn't he want people to be saved and to live? He very much does. But this is a picture of the justice of God against those who have rejected his holiness. This is what happens. They were the generation who were to be ready for Jesus and they acted as the enemies of God rather than his people. And God did exactly what he had done previously to his enemies. He hardened their hearts. Do you remember what it says in Exodus about Pharaoh? God told Moses in Exodus 4.21, He says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And it's clear that God, who is good, who is holy and sovereign, did this. He has blinded their their eyes and hardened their heart. But remember our ground rule. God never, ever, ever does anything arbitrarily. He is not like the God of Islam, Allah. This is God, the real God, who sent Jesus Christ. He is not arbitrary. God is working His plan and that leads us to the third reason. They can't believe so that others can. Look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because, there's that explanation word again, he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now you remember what Isaiah saw of God, of the glory of God? He saw a vision of God's glory, his exaltation. And he saw that just before he was commissioned to say what we, just, what we read in verse 40. But who does John say that Isaiah is talking about? Which member of the Holy Trinity is he talking about? Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? His glory and spoke of Him. Who's that? Jesus! So how was Jesus exalted? How is Jesus glorified? We've been studying that the past few weeks. How is he glorified? Well, let's go back to the Hebrew Scriptures. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is the Messiah. That is Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Fast forward several hundred years and the Apostle Paul said that if the rulers in Jesus' day had understood that, truly understood that, he said they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had repented and been healed like God said that He does if people trust Him and turn to Him, if they had done that, they wouldn't have killed Jesus. And you know what happens if Jesus doesn't die, no salvation. He becomes the Messiah of the Jews, but not the Messiah of the world, like the scriptures said. And that means that we, you and I sitting here today, thousands of years after this, we would not be here we would not be saved, we would not have the opportunity to be saved, nor would we have the opportunity to tell others of the good news of salvation. Because it was the death of Jesus, His resurrection, His exaltation, His glory, that came through these people not believing, and it allows us to see, to understand, to turn, and to be healed. They couldn't believe so that others might. We should be extremely humbled by God's grace here. We should believe God when others can't. For God is sovereign over unbelief. And we should also believe God thirdly when others won't believe. Not just that they don't, not just that they can't, that they won't Look at verse 42 Nevertheless even with all this prophecy about God's word being fulfilled and people not believing many even of the authorities believed in him but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. As we look at this passage, this part of the passage, we are going to have to answer a crucial question. Are these rulers, are these authorities really saved? Nice hat. John says, what does he say? Many of the authorities believed in Jesus. Jesus. That sounds great. But there are three verbs in this that give us some indication that not all is well with this picture. And the truth is, when we come to the end of this, we we ultimately do not know if these authorities are saved or not. We ultimately don't know. The passage does not say. It says two things that seem to be opposed to each other. But why might it be that they won't believe? Well, there are three things here. One, they are afraid. Many even of the authorities believed in him, but what does it say? But for fear of the Pharisees. (laughs) These believing rulers are afraid of the Pharisees, the guys who had the power to kick you out of the religious community. And when fear is in the driver's seat, God is not. Have you found that to be the case? Isn't it really hard to believe God, to trust God, to obey God when you fear someone else? Why is that? Well, in fearing someone else or something else, we are actually giving that person or that thing place in our lives that is reserved for God and God alone. Fear is actually a kind of idolatry. And this is something we who are truly saved are going to need to put to death as many times as as it rears its ugly head in our lives. The second indication that they won't believe is that they won't confess. But for fear of the Pharisees, it says, they did not confess it. What is it? That Jesus is the Christ, like Isaiah saw and spoke of. Why did they not confess? So that, the passage says, they would not be put out of the synagogue. You remember the man who was born blind that Jesus healed? And he confessed Jesus as the Christ, and he was kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue, let's just remember, was the community, was their lifeblood. Family was at the synagogue. And your standing with the synagogue was what told the world around you what kind of person you were. To be kicked out of the synagogue was one of the highest shames of this culture. So let's bring it up to the 21st century. Are there spots in your life where you keep Jesus out of the conversation with other people? Because you want to keep the boat steady. You don't want to lose things. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If these rulers are truly believers of Jesus then as one commentator said, they are clearly acting abnormally as followers of Christ. And this is nothing to be praised in the life of a Christian. But what's the underlying problem of this? They fear. They won't confess. Why aren't they confessing? Finally, they have the wrong love. Look at verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man, more than the glory that comes from God. They wouldn't confess Jesus because they loved being comfortable. People listened to rulers. Rulers had influence. They had reputations. And in our day and age, with the exaltation of ourselves we easily fit under the category of ruler in our own lives. So this applies very much to us. And at this time, if these rulers kept quiet about Jesus, Pharisees and others would think well of them. Look at ruler so-and-so over there, they might say. He's not falling for that Jesus nonsense and neither should you. But what would God say to them if they did not repent of this hiding? He says it in Matthew. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. 18th century pastor Charles Simeon wrote about this passage. He said, look at the rulers of whom we are speaking. Suppose that all the consequences which they dreaded had come upon them what would the anathemas of men have been in comparison with God's displeasure? And what an expulsion from the synagogue in comparison of a rejection from heaven. If the whole world cannot compensate for the loss of a soul, he said, surely they must be fools indeed who barter away their souls for the breath of man's applause. How about us? It is not too late to submit that to the Lord and receive his forgiveness. And again, like fear, we will, have to, we will need to put this to death every time it rears its ugly head in our lives. We should believe God when others won't believe. as God is sovereign over unbelief. Now, we study these things about unbelief, something that could be terribly discouraging, but we t- study these things in the Word of God so that we would never ever lose hope. We should never forget God's sovereignty, though we encounter unbelief everywhere, seemingly. If we do, we, we're done with. Our game is over. But if God is sovereign, Adoniram Judson persevered through six years of seeing no one come to faith. And we can, with people who we've longed to see come to Jesus, we can keep persevering because we know that the God who is sovereign over unbelief is the God to whom we pray that they would believe. hope was brought to Burma, it was brought to Jerusalem, it is brought here because there's good news. You know what's interesting? Many of these authorities may not have believed then. They were still responsible for unbelief, but God was not done. Remember when this happens, this is before Jesus goes to the cross, just a day or two or three. Jesus is on his way to be lifted up as the light of the world, to die on the cross. And we get a couple indications later in the Gospel of John and in the book of Acts that some of these rulers likely did really believe. We could even look at the Apostle Paul who is himself, uh, he called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. And look what happened to him. And that should motivate us to seek the sovereign Lord and ask him to save. This passage paves the way for good news, that it is by faith, faith alone, by trusting Jesus as the one who can take away your shame, your guilt, your fear, who took it away at the cross and has risen again to show the world that he really did do what he said and that it really worked and that we can trust that we have life in him who is building his church all over the world in the midst of unbelief. God is sovereign over unbelief. We can trust that and him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we greatly need daily reminders that you are in control. And in control in the way that you are in control. We greatly need reminders that you sent your Son to save, not so that everybody would remain in unbelief, but so that many would believe. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us through Jesus dying and through the evil actions of sinful people just like us who put him to death. Father, Thank you that we can come to you because of Jesus. And thank you that you hear us because of Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that you desire to use our prayers to bring people to yourself, to help them to see Jesus, to understand Jesus, to turn and be healed like you have done for many of us. Father, please help us in this world of unbelief not to grow discouraged. Help us to keep bringing our cares, our concerns, our desires for the people we know and love to be saved to you. And Lord, we pray for your help and your Holy Spirit working in us to give us boldness so that we would not be like these authorities who feared to confess you. Help us, Lord, to love your glory more than the praise of people. Please help us to seek your pleasure and your desires far above anything and everyone. And we thank you, Lord, and trust you for your good answer to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.